Uh, Sarah Hirschland, thanks for taking the time to be with us here in, in Lausanne, Switzerland. Wow, it's my pleasure. It's great to be here. Um, first, uh, the big change for the U.S. Olympic Committee is a name change to talk about. Now the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. That's right. Uh, officially now to be known as that. That's, that's exactly right. We, we've decided that the international community can no longer call us USAC. Right. So <laughs> we're, we're, we are uh, officially the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And interestingly, I think for some, um, this is obvious. And for others, um, there may be a perception that there's a change in the structure of how we operate. And in fact, as you know, we've been you know, overseeing both Olympic and Paralympic sport for some time. Um, but it wasn't reflected in our name. Um, and it's something that many in the Paralympic community have been nudging us about, have been advocating for. Um, and we took the time really beginning last fall. I joined the organization and the discussion was active. Um, I was, of course, enormously supportive. And we took the time to do the work to understand all the implications of changing the name of an organization is not an insignificant task. Um, and so we, we, we got the work done had a, the unanimous support of our staff. We knew we had the support of the Paralympic community. And in fact, we found the support of the Olympic community in many cases, um, who were also vocal advocates, um, athletes who were able-bodied athletes that really wanted, wanted to see this happen. Um, so yesterday was a, was a really fun day for us as an organization. But does it mean more resources, uh, a different staff organization? To there's, reflect the change. You know, there's no, que there's no question. It is, it is not just a name change. It is a, a commitment and a dedication to um, continuing to progress the awareness, um, the inclusion as a value system of our organization. If you ask and, it, you know, if we took a straw poll of all of the staff who work, quite frankly, in our organization, but in the NGB community in the United States as well, um, one of the top priorities for everyone is to continue to see the growth and in awareness, in coverage, um, in participation of Paralympic sport. So it is, a, it, is a, it is a signal of a bigger commitment for sure. And in terms of other changes, uh, branding material, how you display the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee yes. logo, all that has to change? The, the, there will be changes. So we will keep, we have sort of dual um, flag with the rings and the flag with the Aguidos. Um, and that's been a, a sort of logo lockup that we've used for some time. That will continue. The name will change. Um, the signage on our buildings, uh, you know, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic training centers um, we'll have new names and therefore new signage and things of that nature. Um, our email addresses, I believe, changed this morning. Um, or so they'll now be at usopc.org and, and all of those details that come along with it. So, yes, over time. We did not flip a switch and have everything change overnight. But over the course of the next few months, um, all of those aspects of the organization will shift. And are you looking at any other graphic design changes, new look or anything like that? We won't. As, as no. no, you'll see a lot of continuity in that. Okay. Um, moving along now, though, to the one year that you've been, nearly one year that you've been at the U.S. Olympic Committee at, in Colorado Springs. 
U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. We have to get used to Thank you. We saying do. that. We do. We're uh, going to start charging people a dollar every time they get it wrong. Especially, <laughs> especially in Colorado Springs. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, double for Mark. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been, I'm sure, a, a challenging year yes. because when you came aboard, U.S. Olympic Committee was facing a lot of challenges, still is. That's right. Largely involving the sexual harassment scandal involving USA Gymnastics. Um, where do you think you stand right now as far as clearing the air, clearing the waters uh, on the, this aspect of, uh, of, of the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, we've, made great, we've made great progress, um, but the work isn't done. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not sure this work is ever done. It is a journey. And um, at the same time, you know, you may know we've made, we've made enormous strides inside the organization. I've done quite a bit of restructuring, um, quite a bit of uh, thinking about new resources, um, redeploying existing resources. And so there's a lot of change inside our organization, and we're still adapting to that. Change takes some time to adapt to. Lots of changes in the way we operate with policies, procedures. Obviously, we will head down to Lima here very soon uh, for the Pan-American and Parapan Games. And our procedures and policies are different than they've been in the past. The way we think about preparation for that, the way we think about on the ground. And it is both focused on the prevention and um, response, if you will, to abuse. But it's also focused on the, the, the health and wellness of athletes overall. So we're, we're incredibly focused on ensuring that athletes have both safe but also healthy and, you know, it, healthy in the truest sense of healthy, not just physically healthy but mentally healthy. And so we're looking at, you know, what is the experience that we're providing for athletes day in and day out in the training environment and then particularly as we go to games environments where it's just really critical that the athletes, uh, A, feel safe and are protected, and B, feel like they have all the support they need in their health and wellness to be at their best. Because there were incidents, in, incidents apparently, of abuse carried out at the London Olympics and uh, other places where gymnasts traveled. Well, I think that any time you have individuals in training environments, um, which we know happens you know, right up until competition, you run the risk of abusive environments. In fact, I'll tell you, you know, it is not just coaches and doctors who have the potential to be bad actors. Um, you know, there are absolutely a number of circumstances in which you have to be thoughtful about athletes with other athletes and, you know, other individuals. And so we're, we're taking a very broad look at what does safe environment really look like and how do you manage that? Um. A raft of lawsuits have been filed that name U.S. Olympic Committee, and I think U.S. Olympic Committee is the name that they're using in those yes. lawsuits. Uh, um, potentially have a significant financial impact if they're out, depending on how they're settled. Um, what is the USOC doing to try to clear these off the books and, and move ahead, get sure. beyond the legal battles, because I'm sure that's a real impediment to moving forward. To sure, it these. is. It is certainly, you know, resolving the the relationship with the gymnastics community, the survivor community is, is a high priority for us. There is no question about that. Um, we've been, you know, reasonably um, public about saying that 
uh, we are going to the mediation table with USA Gymnastics and the plaintiff's attorneys. You may be aware USA Gymnastics filed bankruptcy, a, re a, ch a Chapter 11 reorganization bankruptcy that has allowed uh, the, aggre the aggregation of all of the claims really into sort of a single group. Um, they've asked us to come to the mediation table with them. We've agreed to do that, and that process will start here very shortly. So it is our hope that we will come to resolution. Um, now, you know, your, your point is right. Um, important step in the healing, important step in our ability to move forward um, as an organization, but, but more importantly, as a broader Olympic family in the U.S. There are members of the gymnastics community, the one survivors who particularly seem to want a lot out of the U.S. Olympic Committee and USA Gymnastics. They're, they seem to be impatient, not satisfied that uh, personnel changes have not done enough, that perhaps others should bear culpability and you know, be punished for their, for their, what they believe is their complicity in this, in this scandal. Um, can you, can you overcome that? You, what, what do you have to prove to those critics that things are better or will there be other people from the U.S. Olympic Committee who face legal difficulty as a result of this? I, I think the important thing is, as you said, we have to get through litigation. The nature of litigation um, has, has built a divide between our organization and the survivor community. And as I think you know, we're not communicating directly with them. Um, and that's challenging um, because there's not a direct feedback mechanism. So I don't know, um, I don't know what they're thinking. I don't know what they're looking for. Um, I don't have that information directly from them. Um, so that's an important step in the process. If we can put the litigation behind us, we can then, you know, have a more open dialogue and begin communication to understand really um, where the concerns sit and, and what the reforms are that need to need to happen. I will tell you, um, we have done, we have listened to as many critics as are willing to sit down with us. Um, and we have gotten a lot of feedback, in some cases very specific recommendations, and that we're taking quite seriously. And we do think that there are some real changes that we can make in relatively short order uh, to change the nature of the organization. Some of them are governance-related, um, you know, from a board of directors, representation, process-related, things of that nature. We know there's more support that we can give to the Athletes Commission in the United States, and we're working pretty closely with them to start to do that. So I feel very confident that a lot of the pieces that we're working on, we're really gaining alignment with the athlete community, with the NGB community, and all of us are collaboratively working together toward a set of reforms. Some of them are starting to be implemented. Others were still in the planning phase. But I have a high degree of confidence um, that there's real progress being made. And that's progress not just against the things we think, but it's progress against the things that the whole community has come together and said, we all agree these are things that can, can be improved. And what about the interest that the U.S. Congress is taking in this? Uh, Colorado senator, representative from Colorado, both calling for a Blue Ribbon Commission yeah. to look at reforms for the U.S. Olympic Committee. As someone who's covered this USOC for two dozen years or more, there have been other invest investigations or commissions like this. Yeah, yeah, there have. And, 
And in many cases, significant change has come from some of those commissions, for sure. Um, as you know, you know, we actually asked for a commission ourselves, formed the Borders Commission, who is doing some of that work. Now, the Borders Commission was really brought together to focus on the basis of the abuse scandal, if you will, and the, you know, the pieces that have come behind that. The Borders Commission report is due out here in a couple of weeks, and we're looking forward to those recommendations. If Congress determines that they want to take a deeper look, um, particularly at the federal charter, the, the Ted Stevens Act, we're, we, you know, we'll absolutely cooperate with that process and, and welcome it. Uh, do you see any need? Have you identified any changes that you'd like to see made to the to the law? To the act itself. I, I, I think we've looked at things and said there are, it's been some time, as you know, since the act has been modified. There are absolutely changes that could that could create improvements, but we don't feel like there are changes that are required for us to make the improvements we think we need to make. Okay. Um, where do you see that going as far as Congress? Are they going to take a very active role, do you think, in the coming months here? Or are they going to wait and see what happens further? If I could predict what Congress could do, I'd probably be a very wealthy woman. But what kind of relations do you have in Capitol Hill? What kind of work are you doing to inform sure. members I, of Congress? So I, because that's a big part I've of... I've been in Washington probably about every six to eight weeks since I've started. Um, several months back, as you as you referenced. So I'm spending a lot of time there. Um, spending a lot of time educating members, both of the Senate and of the House, um, answering questions, making sure that they have the information they need. As you can imagine, they too are, you know, understanding the deep complexities of the Olympic and Paralympic movement. And so we're doing everything we can to try to be helpful and informative for them. Um, and, you know, much of, much of the time and energy that we've spent there is also focused on the Center for Safe Sport, which is a really important piece of the reform and recovery process for us. Um, more, more funding, more resources coming to the center? We hope so. We hope so. Certainly we have continued to put more resources toward the center. The NGB community has put more resources toward the center. It is our hope that, that Congress will do the same. All right. I was going to say, what kind of assistance can you expect from Congress in this, in this realm? We don't have any answers to that yet, but we continue to ask. You don't, are you looking perhaps for any assistance from Congress for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee moving forward, just general funding? That, that's not something we've made a specific request for at this point. Is the business model okay for the U.S. OPC right now, being a privately funded organization? You know, uh, uh, there's no question that we don't have all the resources we'd like to have to do all the things we'd like to do. Um, and so added resources and, and, you know, growing revenue for the organization will always be a priority of, of our organization and, quite frankly, of my job. Um, that said, whether or not federal funding is the right answer or a viable answer, I, I, I couldn't tell you today that I think that's, that's where our next dollar will come from. Um, in 2020, the, the next phase of the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, arrangement with the IOC goes into effect. How is that going to affect what your what kind of money you draw from the IOC and funding overall for the U.S. Olympic Committee, Paralympic Committee? Uh, I don't have a specific answer to that question right now. Mm -hmm. um, but it is something that will be 
I guess we are, so we're going through the strategic planning process now for the next quadrennial cycle that really will take us 2020 through 2024. Um, so we'll, we'll have the last year of this quad plus the next quad. That's a strategic planning process that we're in the midst of. Um, we'll do the financial forecasting and planning around that sometime later this fall. Um, and all of this comes as you have to prepare for Pan American Games in Lima, Peru in just a month, getting ready for the Tokyo Olympics in, in 2020. Um, how do you balance between the need to work and rebuild the problems that the USOC is facing with its mission of preparing these athletes, preparing teams for, for the Olympics and well, Paralympic Games? Well, number one priority and our, our, our core mission and purpose as an organization is to give athletes the resources and tools they need to be successful um, on the world stage. And so that's where our focus is and has been and will remain. Um, so we're, we're working very hard to ensure that our efforts in uh, providing you know, services, tools, resources, training environments and all to athletes is undistracted. So we feel very good about our preparations for Lima um, and incredibly optimistic about Tokyo. Now you, you lost the long term uh, performance director as a result of um, the scandal. Um, how have you moved on from that and you know how, how will that job be filled in the, in the future? Yeah, fortunately we had a, a really deep bench in that area um, and so we're incredibly fortunate that we have individuals. We've done a bit of restructuring and reorienting um, we now have individuals, one in charge of high performance for summer sports and one in charge of high performance for winter sports. Both have been in the organization for some time and are incredibly talented individuals. So there's, there's an enormous amount of continuity there that, that gives me no pause whatsoever. I'm, I'm quite confident that our teams are doing what they need to do. Are you going to be able to make uh, medal projections for Pan Am games? I wouldn't dare. I wouldn't dare. And, and I guess that would apply for the... <laughs> Tokyo Olympics as well. Uh, uh, Los Angeles, of course, the next game's on the horizon for 2028 for the United States. Uh, what will those games mean to the United States? Well, I think the opportunity um, rests with us to make sure that they mean a lot, not just for the United States, but quite frankly, um, to set an incredible example of inspiration for the, for the world. We're, we are excited about the games, what they can represent. There's an enormous amount of work happening now to think about how to properly prepare uh, for those games. Fortunately, there's not a lot of infrastructure work to be done, and so the work is being done around youth sports programming, around a commitment to sustainability, um, and around sport development, and that's an exciting place for us to be as we look ahead to 28 for sure. Obviously, you know, it's very hard to predict. That's still quite some time out, and it's very hard to predict what the fan experience might be, how technology will impact that, um, but we know it will. And so our job is to put ourselves in a position to, to take advantage of the increasing adaptations in technology for an outstanding fan experience, an incredible athlete experience, um, and to ensure that, you know, we're inspiring the next generation of young people who, who want to take up and participate in all of these sports programs at the end of the day. That's really what this is all about. And the marketing 
marketing part of that is starting to kick in now. It as is. Well. There's a there's a significant focus on you know our our domestic agreements from a from a corporate partnership perspective. Um, all end at the end of 2020, and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic properties is out in the marketplace, beginning to establish those partnerships that will run from 21 through the 28 cycle. So there is a pretty significant effort on the corporate side that's happening right now. And Los Angeles must be a very attractive location, attractive setting in it's which to 72 present. degrees and sunny every day <laughs> on the beach. What's not to love about that? Um, you have new sports <clears throat> to deal with as a result of what the IOC has added to the Olympic program. Uh, surfing, skateboard, sport climbing, uh, maybe breakdancing in, in, in Paris 2024. Um, how do you include these new sports in what you're doing in Colorado Springs, along with track and field and handball and everything else that's part of the right. Olympic family? It's a, it's a great question. And as you can imagine, you know, there are sport organizations that are managing these sports in the U.S., in some cases reasonably well-established. In some cases, there will be a lot of newness to it. Um, but in any case, it's, it's certainly exciting and it's an opportunity for us. You know, one of the roles we hold is in, you know, both oversight and support for the national governing bodies and the recognition of those organizations. So that's, that's an opportunity and an obligation that we have to ensure that we're putting the, the, the national governing bodies, A, recognizing organizations who have the wherewithal to, to properly manage those sports um, and then B, to provide the support that they need, um, particularly for those that are newer organizations and new to the Olympic world. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of orientation and work to be done there, but um, we're seeing some really, really strong growth in a couple of these new sports, and that's exciting. Yeah, what did you think when you first heard that breaking was on track to perhaps join Paris in 2024. Well, I won't share my age, but let's just say I grew up in a world where breakdancing wasn't completely strange to me. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm familiar with it to some extent, and I know the, the athleticism is undeniable. Um, so it will be interesting for us to watch how that unfolds and develops as what today wouldn't be thought of as a traditional sport in the U.S. Um, but certainly we have um, plenty of participation and some incredible... I believe breakers is maybe the right term. What do you think the impact will be of these new sports coming into the Olympic program? Well, it's interesting to see, and I think it will depend. It will depend on the sport. So I can't comment that each of them will see the same path and the same trajectory. Some are already well-established participatory sports in the United States. Others may be less so. But in any case, as we all know, um, when you put a sport on the world's biggest stage, um, it creates a sense of awareness that does motivate and inspire people to participate. And I think that's what we can expect to have happen. Will you have any input or thoughts on what Los Angeles 2028 might propose in the way of its sort of menu of sports that it would like to bring? It's not a conversation we've had yet. Mm-hmm. I was just named to the IOC Program Commission, which will be an interesting opportunity for me to participate in you, some of that you, conversation. You'll be, yeah, you'll be definitely be on the inside of that for yeah. sure. Um, what was your reaction to the referendum that passed in, in Denver a few weeks ago about Olympic bids, uh, calling for Denver to have a referendum if it ever wants to bid for the Olympics? I mean, looking at the 
time frame. That may be many, many years down the road, but uh, it, it passed by a very, very large majority. Yeah. What do you think it says about what people think about the Olympics and hosting the Olympics in the city? Well, I, I can't speak to that. I know, as you know, in, in the fall, um, we went through a pretty extensive process in looking at a potential winter bid city partner and made a determination um, that if we are going to bid for a winter games, that we would do it in partnership with Salt Lake City. Um, that's a commitment that we have. It's also very clear to us, based on all the work we've done, um, that Utah and Salt Lake in particular are enormously, enormously excited about hosting a winter game. So as we look ahead to winter games bids, um, that's, that's our chosen partner, and we're excited about continuing to, to work with them on determining whether a winter bid makes sense for us. And it would be still a few years to go before you need to make any commitment. Well, that's, as you know, that's up to the IOC. Um, but at this point, um, there's not an open bid process for us to participate in. So, and, and a lot of changes to the bid process as well. That's um, what I understand. Yeah. Um, from, from what you hear, does it sound like it's going to make it easier, more flexible? My, my understanding, and, and obviously we'll, we'll hear a bit more, I think, this week, but my understanding is that the IOC is really working uh, to try to create a more financially viable, smooth bid process um, that allows cities to, to, fo to follow a system and a process that makes sense, um, that's flexible, but that makes sense. So I, it'll be, I'm anxious to hear some of the details that I understand will be put out a bit more detail here later this week. Um, I will say from our perspective, we feel great um, about what Salt Lake City and Utah can bring forth in partnership with us. We know that there's a very, very strong um, experience that can be created for athletes in Salt Lake and the surrounding areas. And so we're confident that if there's a point in time where that makes sense for us, um, we'll give it real consideration. The uh, International Federation, which handles Olympic boxing, IEBA, is on pretty shaky ground with the IOC. Um, it looks like it's on, on course to be perhaps replaced by a new, a new federation. There's a lot to be figured out there. But have you been monitoring the situation and how it affects USA boxing, how it will affect athletes in the United States, this, this upheaval, this, this change in plans for, for Tokyo? We are in, in, in communication and constant contact with USA Boxing to ensure um, that we're doing everything we need to be doing um, in our own country, A, to continue to prepare athletes, but also to understand what's required of us as an NOC as we prepare for Tokyo. So, yes, we are, we are focused on it. We have offered our assistance to the IOC and, in particular, the commission who has who's been asked to pick this up from the IOC's perspective as to how we can help. Um, certainly, we do have some infrastructure in the United States with USA Boxing, and we're eager to help if we can help. They've taken on a big task, and it's an important one. Uh, a few years ago, five years ago or so, San Diego was selected by the Association of National Olympic Committees to host the first ANOC World Beach Games. Uh, some delays, they pushed it to 2019, and then just, uh, you know, a month or so ago came word that San Diego wasn't going to do that in October anymore, that another location was going to, going to get picked. Um, what happened? Um, you know, this would have been a, 
uh, seems like a, an important signature event for the United States to host and uh, develop with with ANOC, but uh, it didn't happen. That's correct. That's USOC correct. USOC have much involvement in this. We, we've we've been supportive and will continue to be supportive. And and I actually met with Canela this morning and and pledged our support for the the games, um, which I believe will be in Doha this year. So. We're excited to help. We'll continue to help be supportive of that and look forward to the games wherever they are. Um, moving them to the Middle East brings to mind perhaps worries about the military situation, political situation in that part of the world, given it's just going to be a, a few months from now. Um, concerned about that at all? Are you watching it? We'll certainly pay attention and we'll prepare as we, as we would when we take a delegation of athletes anywhere in the world. Um, how about your overall U.S. Olympic Committee's relations overall with the IOC? Um, how would you evaluate them right now? Do you feel you're in good standing with the IOC? Any outstanding issues that have to be bridged between the U.S. and the IOC? I think at this point, I'm still, as you know, relatively new. Um, and so, I, you know, my, my focus right now is really on continuing to build relationships, um, understanding and learning about how we can be helpful to the IOC and, how, you know, what, what, what are the best mechanisms for us in the role we play in the global movement for us to add support to what they need to do and what they're trying to do. So uh, obviously a lot of work focused around, um, you know, as a host NOC, focused around the Los Angeles games. But we're also really conscious of the fact that we've got a, we've got a long time before that, and so we all have to be patient and, and sort of pace ourselves as in those preparations. The IOC has a lot to happen before they come to Los Angeles. Um, but the relationships are good and strong. I'm beginning to get to know the team very well. I'm beginning to understand um, you know, what our role is in the global movement, what's asked of us, what's expected of us, and where we're good at that and maybe where we can improve. You've been to Washington a few times, but you've also been to Lausanne, here to Lausanne a few times sure. since taking the job. Perhaps two of our most important partnerships. Now, how often do you get here? So th th not often, um, although I imagine I'll be here a, a bit more as, as we go forward. As you know, I spent the vast majority of my first month's uh, in the role focused domestically. And so I'm now, you know, as we're sort of plotting plans and making the reforms needed on the domestic side, I'm starting to spend a little bit more time internationally. Uh, back to the question of international federations, but still involving the U.S., I think there's just one international federation president right now who is from, from the U.S. From the U.S. Um, is there a need to have more American voices in the international federations leading international federations, and what can the U.S. Olympic Committee do about that? Sure. I, I think it's always important for us to, to have a seat at the table, um, both to make sure that, you know, the interests of the United States are represented, but also we're, we're, an, we're, we're an NOC that has a, a great base of assets, and in many ways we have privilege. And so if we can contribute on an international stage, it's important for us to do that. Um, and then looking in really at the long term, for the Olympics and making them an attractive, appealing product for sponsors, for spectators, for people who want to follow the sports. Um, what does the Olympics need to 
to move into the future, to excite a new generation of, of, of spectators and athletes to come into the Olympic tent. Well, the most important thing is the second part of what you said, and that's exciting athletes. If we create great experiences for athletes to be enormously successful and achieve their highest potential, um, and we do that really well, all of the rest of the pieces will fall in place. Okay. Sarah Hirschland, CEO of U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. There Thank you, you for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Great to have you with us in Lausanne. Thank you.